is the king of analogies. Uh, he loves them. He loves using them to explain difficult, abstract concepts uh, into simple layman's terms. Uh, probably the most famous of his analogies are known as parables, uh, which are stories with a moral or a message uh, that is submitted alongside um, each other. Uh, within the Sermon on the Mount, we find a couple of his analogies or his illustrations. And today's text, we move from the Beatitudes of the Christians to the first of many analogies that Jesus will use. Uh, so I want to put forth to you a tip, a strategy, uh, when it comes to interpreting and understanding Jesus' analogies. Uh, most of the time, the most simple, straightforward rendering of an analogy or an illustration is the correct one. The most simple or straightforward rendering or interpretation is the correct interpretation. You don't have to think too deeply. You don't have to allegorize too heavily. Uh, the most straightforward, plain uh, understanding of an analogy is the correct one. So we have two illustrations or two analogies being put forth to us tonight. That being salt and light. There, there is no deeper trick to understand what salt and light do and what is their function. Therefore, when it comes to understanding the Christian's presence, I've titled this sermon, The Christian's Presence. Uh, to understand the Christian's presence in the world that is, as we looked at last week, bent on persecuting them because they first persecuted Christ, the meaning of these two analogies is straightforward and clear to us. That is, regardless of opposition, the Christian is called to have a, one, a preserving, and second, an illuminating presence in the world. Regardless of opposition, the Christian is called to have a preserving and illuminating presence presence in the world. Uh, so we'll take these two salt and light sayings in their parts, uh, each in their own part. And the first is, uh, our first point is a presence that preserves. A presence that preserves. And that's found in verse 13. And then second, our second part is a presence that shines. A presence that shines. Uh, verses 14 to 16. So let's look at verse 13. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, today, uh, January 13th, 2021, salt is abundant. It is everywhere. You can go to the supermarket and have an entire aisle devoted to salt. When it snows, it not only snows snow, but it also, it also snows salt. You can find salt everywhere. Um, you can find normal iodine salt, rock salt, ice cream salt, Himalayan pink salt, kosher salt, non-kosher salt, I guess. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, salt is mined from the earth and processed so that it is safe for us humans to consume. 
However, in the ancient Near East, uh, salt is a precious commodity. Uh, Harvested from same mines, uh, the process probably takes three to four times as long, uh, therefore making the supply lower and the demand higher. Uh, Salt has multiple functions. But for the sake of Jesus' analogy here, the two main functions we want to look into are, one, the flavoring of food, and second, the preservation of food. So unless you're sensitive to your cholesterol levels, I assume everyone here loves having the right amount of salt on their food. Uh, Salt embellishes what would be a tasteless, bland piece of meat, vegetable, fruit sometimes, and it makes it dynamic and enjoyable to our taste buds. We all understand what salt does. God designed man to eat meat, and therefore meat is good, and meat paired with salt is even better. I I am a heavy proponent of meat. But Jesus says here, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, From here on out, as we looked at the previous two verses, uh, Jesus will not stop with the second person plural pronoun, you, you all, y'all. He will be addressing us until the sermon is finished. Uh, He will bring to bear upon each of us, the listeners, what it truly means to be a part of his kingdom, uh, what it means to be both a member or citizen of his kingdom of heaven, in heaven, uh, and also, like in this case, still a part of this earth. You are the salt of the earth. So he calls us the salt of the earth. And so in some ways, we're still part of the earth, even though Jesus calls us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, To clarify, the issue Jesus wants us to get at here is the issue of allegiance. Uh, For example, all of you carry, I think, United States passport. Um, That passport allows you to travel abroad as an American citizen. Uh, Whenever you travel abroad, you travel based upon the rights and privileges afforded to you as an American citizen. Uh, The U.S., United States being the most powerful free country in the world, allows her citizens to uh, travel to the most, most countries in the world. Uh, But there are plenty of countries where traveling there as an American citizen becomes much more difficult. Places in the Middle East or places in Southeast Asia where Islam thrives, uh, these countries scrutinize American citizens. And therefore, traveling in and out of that country is far more difficult. And then compound the fact that if you're a Christian, it becomes even more difficult. Usually you don't say. All is that to say... When you travel and you go abroad, uh, you may be currently residing in another country, but your citizenship is elsewhere. That makes sense. Uh, This is the most true and the most apparent reality for missionaries. But in the same vein, Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that great commission passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, calls all of us to be missionaries, uh, even here in northeastern Pennsylvania. This is a concept that is especially important to Jesus and something I will reiterate reiterate to you again and again uh, because it permeates itself all over, at least the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 
if you align yourself with Jesus, if you proclaim his name both in faith and in baptism, you are proclaiming that this earth is not your home, but it is still your mission field. That is the underlying presupposition or the underlying thought behind Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, Salt is precious, as we said before. It has a flavoring quality, uh, one that pairs itself with other foods. So in the same way, Jesus is arguing that Christians, the church, uh, the people who are moved and transformed by the gospel have a distinct quality to them that pairs itself well with the world. Pairs itself, not joins itself. He makes this clear by introducing a contrast. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus poses a hypothetical, paradoxical situations uh, when it comes to unsalty salt. Or transpose that to a Christian, an unchristian Christian. Imagine. Uh, seasoning your food with salt that is not salty. Uh, What do you get? You get the same bland food, if not worse, because you introduce something random into the equation. Uh, In the same way, Jesus is saying, uh, say you have Christians who claim to be Christian, uh, but their lives do nothing to show the Christ they say they follow. Uh, They do not love one another. Uh, They do not make disciples of all nations. They do not love the church, the bride in which Jesus has given himself up for. Rather, they stay at home. They only think of themselves. They give little care and thought to how to present the gospel uh, in a winsome, caring, desperate way to their friends and family and other people around them. Uh, rather, they just stick to the, their huddle of similar people who call themselves Christian. And in the end of the day, uh, they prove themselves entirely ineffective to the world around them and for the cause of Christ. That is the imagery, the concept that Jesus is posing to us here with this powerful rhetorical question. How shall its saltiness be restored? How do you restore the saltiness to unsalty salt? How do you restore the Christianness to unchristian Christians? The simple answer is you can't. You can't do that. You can't make salt salty again, nor can you make an unchristian Christian again. That just sounds alarming, but turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I want to show this to you. Uh, This is very serious. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. The book of Hebrews is all about a pastor who deeply cares about his people and deeply wants his people to persevere till the end and not give up and in the face of persecution. Very similar context to what Jesus is talking about uh, in our text today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 goes on to talk about a very sensitive yet real topic known as apostasy or walking away. And this is what he has to say about those who, those unchristians trying to be Christian again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 4. We'll read down to verse 6. For it is impossible 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, that is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then again, then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk with rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. What is he saying here? He's saying that if you have professed Christ, if you have given your life over to Christ and in turn Years down the road, maybe you've grown up, you've become a working adult, you've uh, walked away from the church and walked away from Christ entirely. You have denied Christ uh, as your Lord and Savior. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that you can't bring that person back to repentance again. You can't be saved again. You're saved once. Um... Can you lose your salvation? That's the question, right? Can you lose your salvation? Simple answer. Uh, you know you cannot. Uh, the grace of God is too powerful for sinful man to overcome with his sin. But in denying Christ, in denying uh, the fact, the reality of the gospel that he has saved you, and after you profess being saved, if you deny Christ, you prove that you were never saved in the first place. Um, Christian, listen to me. Uh, if your life reflects an ineffective, unsalty, uh, to borrow Jesus' analogy, kind of life, you have to repent. You must repent. Repent and return to Christ and seek Him to obey, seek to obey Him once more. If you continue to abide in your sin, rather than abiding in the commands and the lifestyle of Christ, then you are on a trajectory that would go and show and prove that you were never Christ's to begin with. Jesus is saying here, if saltiness has lost its flavoring function, that function can never be restored again. That is same for the Christian who no longer lives as a Christian nor desires to. Furthermore, this unsalty salt, this unchristian Christian is then, he says, is thrown out. And it is trampled upon under people's feet. Uh, this gets at the other function of salt, that preserving element. Uh, salt is not only used to flavor foods, but it also is used to preserve foods. Um, here's a question for you to consider. Why has Jesus Christ not yet returned? Uh, why has he not come back to, uh, uh, as he said he would, in glory, uh, return and set everything straight? That there will be no longer sin, no longer pain, no longer sorrow. Uh, everything will bow the knee in subjection to him. Why has that not yet happened? Wouldn't it be so easy for Jesus to come back and in a blink of an eye, snap of a finger, everything would be set right? But for 2,000 years, that has not yet happened. Why not? 
because the fullness of believers, in short, has not yet come to Christ. Uh, because the mission of the church is not yet over. Uh, the church, in essence, in, in some way, is a floodgate for sin. Uh, Romans 1 describes the slow and downward spiral of the world, how it goes from bad to worse. And the church exists um, not so much as a hard stopgap, uh, but more so as the preserving element of what is right, good, and godly. Uh, the church exists so that those who hate Christ may come to know and to see Christ and have life abundant in him, as he says. Therefore, when Christ comes again in his second, retu- second coming, the act of evangelism, the mission of evangelism will cease. Evangelism or disciple making will no longer happen in heaven. Uh, that is the one thing we cannot do in heaven. And we will not do it. That act of preaching the gospel so other people may repent and believe in Christ and have life in his name will no longer happen once he returns. And so, therefore, according to Jesus' analogy here, Christians are salt who, for a time, slow the decay and the rot of food. That's what salt does in its preserving function, which in this case is the world. Uh, Salt does not freeze food in a vacuum and place it where it no longer uh, rots or molds, but it slows that process down. Therefore, when salt is no longer salty, it loses that preserving function. When it loses that function, it is no longer useful to God, nor is it useful to the world, an unchristian Christian. Therefore, Jesus says it is tossed out, trampled, even though the world recognizes that an unchristian Christian, a hypocrite in name and deed, is completely and utterly useless to them, to the world. After all these beatitudes that we just studied, what is the point Jesus is trying to make here? Why transition into this analogy about salt? It's all about presence. What kind of presence does and should the Christian have in a world that not only has rejected them, but in turn moves to persecute them? Christians are called to have a presence that is preserving. A presence that pairs with a dying, a decaying world in sin so that some may come and taste and see that the Lord Jesus is truly good and truly worth following. The church is called to make a difference in the world that alerts the world to the gospel. There's something inherently different, flavorful, wonderful about these Christians, about the church, because there's something inherently different, uh, flavorful, and wonderful about their Savior, Christ Jesus. Uh, My job, the job of a shepherd, a pastor, in part, is to alert, to alert the flock, to call to attention, uh, to make you realize uh, that by making you uncomfortable, that making, that rousing you, um, and making you realize that living a life for Christ is a very, very high calling. Uh, To be a Christian demands your entire being. Uh, Every hour, every minute, every moment is called to be given over to Christ. Is your life effective? Are you living a life that inherently possesses qualities that make you different from the world around you? 
Do you possess a presence in, in people that alerts them to the loveliness of Jesus and calls them out for their sin? Does your life possess that preserving element as salt does? That's the question that Jesus is asking here in this, this one short and powerful and poignant verse. Are you salty? Moving on, we turn to a different analogy, one that is similar. Um, and we talk about a presence that shines or a presence that illuminates. Uh, look at with me t- at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, Jesus moves on from the preserving quality of, qualities of salt, one that holds back the corruptions of sin, uh, to an outward-reaching, illuminating nature uh, that is light. Um, salt holds back death and decay. Uh, light extends forth life. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is that Christians are called to be and function as both. In like manner, Jesus uses that second person, plural pronoun, to describe our presence in the world. You are the light of the world. Uh, Light would be another analogy that the ancient Near Eastern people would be familiar with. For them, there would be two main sources of light. Light from the sun uh, and light from lamps and candles and fires. Light from the sun is essential. Here, light is life-giving. Uh, By the process of photosynthesis, food is grown and thus life is sustained. Um, The sun governs all activities during the day, as you read in Genesis 1. However, during the night, uh, external artificial light sources are necessary. And here is what Jesus is moving towards. During the night, an artificial light source is necessary for human function. That is why as more and more artificial light, stuff like this, Uh, More and more artificial light sources are developed, um, especially with the advent of electricity. Uh, Technology exponentially grows and humans uh, will be able to stay up later and later and function. Uh, Obviously, Jesus isn't referring to a future technology that his audience wouldn't understand at that present moment. But his point still stands. Uh, Light must shine forth to give to those who need it. Jesus couples this first initial declaration that Christians are the light of the world with also being a city set on a hill. This simply just means that something that is prominent and can be easily seen uh, is put on display. It can't be hidden. It's impossible to. Something that sticks out that can be plainly seen should not and cannot be hidden or put away. Therefore, for the Christian, one's Christianity, one's Christianness cannot be hidden because it should be plain and obvious for everyone to see. People should be able to tell that you are a Christian. So in a similar manner with being the salt of the earth, can people taste and see your saltiness and tell that you are a Christian? Can people observe your life and see and say for themselves that yes, he or she is a Christian. There is something different, something illuminating about him or her. Jesus uses one more illustration about how Christians are a lamp that is lit for the purpose of giving light to the entire house or room. 
You do not naturally light something just to cover it and remain in darkness. In the same way, you are not a Christian just so that you can tuck away your Christianity so that no one can see or know about it. The applications here are plentiful. But I think by implication, you can already think of a couple of ways, even starting tonight, how you can be a better light in your contexts, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your homes. But Jesus, for Jesus, application is very straightforward. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That command, let, is a simple command of being. Being. Just simply be a Christian. Be what Christ calls you to be. Be what scripture describes and defines a Christian to be. Study the one another's. Let the principle of love be your driving motivator in all that you say and do. Uh, Let the service of others be on the forefronts of your minds as you discern how to build meaningful, healthy relationships with other people. And in the right time, uh, be so concerned with other people's eternal destinies that you can't help but to share the gospel with them. Jesus tells us that it is these good works that will give indication that we are Christ's own. It is good works that point back to the glory of God the Father in heaven that will make people see and differentiate us as Christians. Light by nature must go forth. It must go forth and penetrate and permeate everything it touches. In the same way, your presence in the world, the church's presence in the world, must penetrate and permeate everything that it comes in contact with. Therefore, there must be a simultaneous putting off of sin uh, where you no longer engage in the lusts of your flesh and there must be a putting on effect of Christ-likeness. All the blessed attitudes, all these beatitudes we just studied, one of humility, poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, meekness, uh, a deep-seated desire or a hunger for righteousness, etc., etc. All these are ways in which Christ-likeness, your Christianness, being a light of the world, goes forth in these kind of attitudes, in this kind of lifestyle. The best way to have a presence that shines and illuminates the love of Christ is simply to study and imitate Christ. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Same exact phrase. Therefore, we share a similar position and calling just as Christ did, as lights of the world. He was the light of the world first. And so we fall in line and we are now. Jesus refers his light as a life-giving light, that it brings people out of darkness of their sin and into newness of life. So in the same way, when we present Christ both in word and deed, we present this Christ who calls himself the light of the world. He, through us, brings people out of darkness in their sins. That is why the mission of the church is as vital and necessary as it is today as it was 2,000 years ago. 
That is why Christ has not yet come. You play a part in that. Every one of you. To give one more illustration. When it comes to growing food, farming, we know that to make a seed germinate, grow, engage in the process of photosynthesis through the light of the sun, uh, that process that the farmer has no direct hand in. But no one would deny that the farmer himself is still essential in the process of growing and harvesting food. God uses the farmer to plant, till, water, tend to the crops, fertilize until fruit is born. In the same way, God uses you as lights of the world uh, to shine forth the ultimate light of Jesus Christ into men's hearts so that they may be born again. They may, be, they may repent from their sins and place their faith in Christ. Uh, this is what theologians like to call uh, a synergistic act of God. Sin meaning multiple, alongside of. Where God uses imperfect vessels like you and me to do a perfect work of salvation. Therefore, live in a way where when people watch, when they see you, they may see your good, good deeds, as Jesus says, which is radically different from their own. That they attribute all of that to the glory of God as it can only be attributed to God. And of course, the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question we have to come back time and time again is, do I see and behold this light, the light of the world known as Jesus Christ? Do I see him for what he truly is? What we're going to study later, as he's going to go into later, is that we can be fooling ourselves. The light that we call light can be darkness. And how great is that darkness, he will say. And the question is, do we see this gospel? Do we see this good news of Jesus Christ as he wants us to see it? So that when we in turn display it and shine forth and illuminate, illuminate as Jesus calls us to be lights of the world just as he was, that they get the true thing. That they wouldn't get unchristian Christians. Do you believe in this gospel? That Jesus Christ came and died and shown forth his goodness on the cross to you by paying for your penalty of sin. Do you believe in that? Do you, have you forsaken your previous sinful lifestyle and have, have committed yourselves to following him? And in turn, go to show other people that following Christ is so much worth it than swallowing and staying in the deadness and darkness of sin. Always preach the gospel to yourself. Always check yourself to see if you are in Christ. Always make sure that and reflect that and ask yourself, am I effective for the gospel? Am I a salty piece of salt? Am I a beaming, shining, prominent, on display light for Christ? And for those areas that we fall short, because I know, I know we do fall short, we repent and we turn back. Lest we find ourselves never to be of Christ's own to, 
to begin with. And we'll, go to, we'll get to that too. Where many will say to Christ, Lord, Lord, and he will reject them. Um, this is the first part of Jesus' thesis. Where he's getting at the Christian's presence in the world. Because Christians aren't just Christians in a Christian huddle. Brother, they are those who are moved by the gospel, support one another, and go out into a world that is dying and decaying and in need of that gospel. And so, what we're going to study moving forward is that, that function, that presence. Uh, how do you obey the law? How do you come to understand what God's law is? Because that has deep ramifications with how you present yourself to the world. We'll get to that next week. But for now, uh, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we know that you call us to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And we also know that we, even on our best days, miserably fall short. That we cave to a fear of man. We um, indulge in our desires, our sinful desires, more than we care about the good of our neighbor. And all these things, Lord, we look at your word and we examine our lives and we see that we fall short. And so, Lord, we repent, ask your forgiveness. We ask for another extra measure of grace to to grow, uh, to be sanctified, to be transformed. Lord, help us to engage in following your commands that we put off sin and we put on Christ and we know that you work alongside us. You work with us. So help rest, help us rest and help us act and live uh, on your character, on your goodness, on your strength, Lord that we may behold Christ day in and day out and see that Jesus is so worthy of following and putting on display. God, we ask in the name of Christ, knowing that there is no greater name uh, here on earth or above the earth. And so may you do with us as you please and as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.